This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with Robert Katzberg, author of The Vanishing Trial, The Era of Courtroom Performers and the Perils of Its Passing. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Just so that my listeners get an idea of who you are and what your career has been like, can you give us just very quick your, your greatest hits? What, uh, what should my listeners know about you? I am a former federal prosecutor for four years in the Eastern District of New York. Uh, before that, I was a law clerk in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. For the 39 years after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was a partner in Kaplan and Katzberg, a small boutique white-collar criminal law firm. I am now uh, consulting counsel to Holland and Knight, where I focus primarily on international tax matters, usually related to uh, overseas accounts that have not been disclosed. So the premise of this book, the trials are vanishing. When we look at statistics, I was, I had heard this before, but anytime I say it in print, it's still a shock to me that only 2% of federal defendants exercise their right to a trial by jury. And that to me, especially if you only know about the legal system, mostly through popular culture, that's not what we usually see. However, how does, it, how does it really work? What is happening in those other 98% of cases? Well, I mean, historically, a low percentage, a comparatively low percentage of criminal defendants in federal court have gone to trial. But that relatively no, low number has been historically around 10%. That is to say, one in 10. Now it, that has been slashed rather drastically to 2%. As the book indicates, uh, the primary reason, not the sole, but the primary reason for this drastic decline was the enactment in the 1980s of the federal sentencing guidelines. And the federal sentencing guidelines imposed this new regime of sentencing, which not only created a system in which judges had far less discretion— uh, not only created a system in which people went to jail for longer periods of time, but created a situation um, that ultimately led to a fear of going to trial by both criminal defendants and their lawyers, given the terrible consequences that would result much more than before in a guilty verdict. There does seem to be a cascade of unfortunate results from this and from the vanishing trial. One I'd like us to focus on first, and we'll get to some others in a little bit, is you point out that, actually, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to read your own words back to you because I found it so striking. Thank you. Sure. There are only two constitutionally guaranteed ways the average citizen can directly impact the operation of our democracy, voting in an election and serving on a jury. Voting is our check on the executive and legislative branches of the government. It enables us to decide who controls these branches and to keep office holders accountable. Less recognized is that jury service is our check on the judicial branch. It gives the average citizen, not judges appointed for life after having been prescreened by politicians, the power to decide society's most important matters, life and death, guilt or innocence, 
whether a company or individual is to be held responsible for wrongdoing, and so much more. We hear a lot these days, and properly so, about gerrymandered election districts and other political attempts to limit voting in too many places in our country. It is a known threat to democracy. On the other hand, there is no similar public outcry about the citizenry's gradual removal as a key participant in our judicial system because that reality has largely escaped public notice. You and I are talking on June 5th, and our country has been awash in in protests, and it seems that a lot of people are, are waking up to problems in our systems. How do you think the divorce of the average citizen from participation in the jury system or getting a look up close at the judicial, judicial system has hurt us? Well, it's hurt us badly because it removes, as I said in the book, it removes a very significant part of the public's constitutional obligation, duty. I mean, it's called jury duty because it's our duty as citizens to stand for the general public in the system to make sure that the system operates in a fair and appropriate way. And if you're removing the public guard, so to speak, in the overwhelming number of prosecutions, then that constitutional duty is being abrogated. And that is essentially the problem. Look, you know, nobody likes jury duty. People um, <laughs> are not happy when they get their jury notice. But invariably, in any number of post-verdict interviews that I've done and my colleagues at the bar have done with jurors after the fact, it's remarkable the degree to which people from all walks of life say, you know something, uh, I really didn't want to do this, but I am so happy that I did. I learned so much and I feel that I'm so, I'm playing such a, an important role, a role that I didn't appreciate before. And again, if, if the average citizen is no longer going to be able to play that role, even for once or twice in his or her life, it, it's, it's a terrible loss. It's just a terrible loss. The other angle that I'd love to talk about, about vanishing trials, is one that you really get into. And it's this idea that without the practice, essentially, without actually performing in trials, even if you yourself um, are a defendant in a criminal trial and you exercise your right to a jury trial, the lawyer you hire to defend you may simply not only be inexperienced, but have had no opportunity to gain that experience. Can you talk about that and really what the difference has been from when you first started in the profession? Well, again, as the book indicates, what I'm trying to do is to recreate the era in which my practice thrived. That is the era of when 10% of the federal criminal cases were going to trial, not 2%. And trials were everyday occurrences. Um, some of the top criminal defense lawyers, the Jimmy LaRosas and the Ben Braffmans and the Gus Newmans, and all of the people who I highlight in the book as being top performers, they would be going to trial once or twice a month. Now, they don't even go to trial once or twice a year. As I try to say in the book, there is no legal equivalent to a Juilliard school. There's no law school equivalent to Juilliard, uh, where somebody who uh, is a singer or uh, an oboist or a cello player uh, shows his or her talent 
and based upon talent or potential talent, is admitted to Juilliard. Law school doesn't screen people and can't possibly screen people for potential courtroom talent. It only is developed after law school, after a person graduates, is admitted to the bar, and is thrown into the courtroom. And it's a sink or swim situation. And ultimately, you learn the various skills and uh, you become a trial lawyer. And you become a trial lawyer. And the more cases you try, the better trial lawyer you are. The more varied your cases are, the more talented you become. And that's a talent, that's a skill that I most closely, uh, the most close, the, the closest analog would be being a, a stand-up comedian. I don't know wh- whose career you want to follow, whether it was, you know, Larry David's or, or any of the great, you know, comedians. In the beginning, they weren't so great. They had to learn what worked and what didn't work. And they had to keep doing it to refine their skills to ultimately become who they were. And it's the exact same thing for criminal defense lawyers. And so without the opportunity to either develop, hone, or maintain these skills, they are becoming a a greater rarity. And to get to your specific question, it was always something of a crapshoot, frankly, for criminal defendants to hire a lawyer to defend them in the courtroom and really know who they were getting. There are some criminal defense lawyers who had these terrific reputations who maybe were not so good. Uh, There were others who didn't have top reputations who maybe were quite good. It was always sort of a guessing game. The problem now is that your chances of finding the right one have been reduced because the number of lawyers with the experience and talent to win a case in federal district court that number has been greatly reduced. So your chances of finding the right person have been greatly reduced. That's the problem. And I don't want to leave my listeners with the idea that The Vanishing Trial is only an issues book talking about, you know, obviously you address that. It certainly raised my concern levels, but the book is so much more than that. In talking about your career, you go into these sketches of the people whether they be, you know, defendants or other lawyers or judges that you have met throughout your time. You pull out examples of things that they did that were effective or ineffective in court. And when you brought up comedians earlier, I was reminded very vividly of one character, uh, a real person, obviously, in this book, Jerry Lewis. Could you talk a little bit about Jerry Lewis? He really seemed like someone of a certain time and place. I would love to hear, uh, in your words, talk about Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis had already been a pretty established lawyer by the time I came to the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1972 in Brooklyn. And he was one of the more most experienced lawyers. But the thing about Jerry Lewis was he was a character. He was a, an oddball even then. And by today's standards, he would be somebody that you would th- that you would think came from a different planet. You know, he was this short man with a terrible toupee, uh, black <laughs> slick black toupee, and a mustache that was um, dyed the same stark black color. Uh, his toupee sort of fit lopsided on his head like a ill-fitting beret. He spoke in the thickest 
Brooklyn E's accent you could imagine, D's, Dems, and Do's. But Jerry would walk into a courtroom and all eyes would stay on him the moment he opened his mouth. He was a just an extraordinary cross-examiner and an extreme character. And uh, I used to... I used to watch him whenever I could because it was watching a performer, uh, watching just a, a, a classic performer. And um, the story that I tell in the book is really geared toward the extraordinary nerve that Jerry had, the, the sheer gall that he would bring into a situation. <laughs> he was, for two years, what Jerry was doing was summing up to a jury that, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, the last case of my long criminal trial career. And he, had, he was trying his last case for like two years. And uh, Ken Kaplan, my partner, and I snuck into Judge Weinstein's courtroom to watch Jerry Lewis one time to catch his summation because we wanted to see whether or not he would have the nerve to pull that in front of Jack Weinstein, who was um, one of the most exalted, respected judges in the country. And sure enough, when Jerry finishes his summation towards the very end, he gets kind of choked up and tearful. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be my last trial after all my years in the courtroom. And Judge Weinstein interrupted him and said, Mr. Lewis, are you telling this jury that because this is your last trial, as you say, that they should acquit your client? And without missing a beat, like a perfect comedian, whether Jack Benny or anybody else, he said, Your Honor, I can think of no finer way to go out. <laughs> um, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive of anybody doing that today. But he did, and he was wonderful. And when I recreate you know, Jerry Lewis and um, La Rosa, Jimmy La Rosa and Ben Braffman and all those, what I'm trying to do is bring the reader into the real courtroom, into the reality of the courtroom, not the stylized, uh, uh, overly romantic, uh, overly dramatic uh, versions you'll see on television or in the movies, uh, but what it was really like, what the courtroom was really like at that time of the abundant trial. Because what I want to achieve is for the audience to understand what we're losing, what's being lost with the vanishing trial. You had some very insightful things, I thought, to say about the difference between district courts and appellate courts and dealing with the realities of trials as you're trying to show people what what really happens versus a more highbrow, idealized, unemotional, intellectual, separated idea of, well, this sure. is the law. So I'd love to have you share a little bit with my listeners on that, if you don't mind. My experience is in the district court, the United States District Court, whether it was the year clerking for Judge Gash in the district court in Washington, D.C., or all of the, or the four years plus of prosecuting cases in district court, or the 39 years thereafter defending criminal cases. We are so inundated these days with the simplistic labels on judges. And people don't understand the difference between appellate judges and, and, and trial judges. And there is a gross difference in what they do, even though they're all federal judges. And 
district court judges and the judges who I profile in the book are all district court judges, have to deal with human beings day in, day out. And essentially, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, they have to follow the federal rules, both of procedure and of evidence, to bring about a just resolution to the, for the problem that is before them and for the human beings involved. Appellate judges, judges on the circuit courts or the United States Supreme Court, almost never see the litigants. They see their lawyers. Judges on appellate courts, the circuit courts or the Supreme Court, uh, almost never have to read the letters of family members who are just dying, waiting for the result because it so impacts their lives of what the judge will do in terms of sentencing. The appellate courts never have to read or see or hear from victims of crime to explain the impact that the conduct at issue has had on their lives. Judges have to deal with real, district court judges have to deal with real human beings, not just their lawyers. And it changes everything, and it brings into play the significance of that judge's personal background and history. And what I try to bring out in the book is how the consequences of that in district court will vary because judges are all not the same. They, they don't all have the same histories. They don't have the same personalities. They don't have the same degree of humility or intellectual curiosity or whatever it may be. They swear an oath to do the best job they can. And the remarkable thing about the district court is, as I indicate in the book, how many extraordinary district court judges there are, how many wonderful, capable admirable human beings we are fortunate to have in the district court. But that is not everybody. And there are judges who, unfortunately, don't meet the kind of standard that we should be expecting judges to have. And I am quite frank in my portrait of these various um, different kind of judges. And what I did in the book was to purposely select among the judges receiving criticism in terms of in the trials that I had before them, those judges who uh, the overwhelming percentage of my colleagues at the bar um, would have the same opinion of, either positive or negative. And so we'll, the, the book profiles a lot of different kinds of judges. And a number of people said to me, boy, you know, the way you wrote about Jack Weinstein, the way you wrote about Orrin Judd, the way you wrote about Morris Lasker, it almost seems like you were in awe of them. And the answer is, yes, I was in awe of them because they were such extraordinary individuals that um, they were worthy of that kind of response. You do indeed name names, not just of the people that you admire, but of the people you feel deserve public criticism. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our sponsors. But when we come back, I'd love to hear more from our guest about judging the judges. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, 
and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and we're still speaking with Robert Katzberg, author of The Vanishing Trial. Bob, you have an entire chapter, chapter 11, Judging the Judges, where, as you've already said, there are many judges who you openly admired and thought were, were doing the right things for the right reasons. And then there were both judges and attorneys who you had real criticism for. Did you worry at all in writing this book that there would be blowback from that? Oh, of course. I mean, there's no question about that. But again, what I'm trying to do is to be as honest as I can. Now, obviously, my view of somebody is hardly dispositive of who he or she is. All that I'm trying to do is to relate to the audience, to relate to the average person exactly how different things can be depending upon who you are dealing with. Part of it is stemming from the um, extraordinary nature in which these days judges have been wrapped in this mantle of shall we say, objectivity, uh, this mantle of being a, a follower of a certain judicial philosophy and that they're only guided by that strict judicial philosophy and they let nothing come between them and that judicial philosophy. And that's not reality. That's advertisement. That's not reality. The famous a quote from Chief Justice um, Roberts that he's just an umpire, you know, calling balls and strikes. I mean, that's, it's not true, okay? It's, it's, it's a false analogy. And um, there's no way that a human being's individual history, characteristics, personality, life experience won't directly or indirectly impact an ultimate decision that the judge makes. Whether they're aware of it or not, Judges are human beings, and being a human being means uh, acting in a certain way that is reflective of the kind of human being you are and the kind of experience you've had. Given that you were trying to accomplish this and just be very open and honest and count things to the best of your memories, mm -hmm. what has the response been from the people who have read your book, especially in the New York legal circles that you were moving in? What has been the response sure. from people who, who read it? The response, frankly, has been wonderfully positive throughout. Um, I understand this, though. In writing the various chapters in the book about specific trials or events, in every single situation, I have always, and in, in, in the drafting process, sent drafts to other participants in that case or in that event. So, for example, I know you're referring to the Court of Appeals and the uh, John Gleason opinion. Nothing was written about that that I didn't collaborate with um, other people involved. And uh, my version of, of those events uh, are based upon not only the record, not only the transcripts, not only the opinions, but the input from other participants like Elton Abramowitz. Uh, for the Belnick trial, for example, Reed Weingarten um, received a draft. Uh, Mark Belnick received a draft. 
So in all of these situations, I was careful not to rely upon my own memory, but to consult with and send drafts to other participants in the same event so that I could be confident that my narrative was as accurate as possible. And I can say from a reader's perspective, one of the things I appreciated was I never thought that you were casting yourself as this infallible authority. In fact, you share many stories in which you say, essentially, this is what I did at trial. I tried my best and, uh, you know, they convicted my client. They still convicted my client. And you can be the world's best attorney and things can still not go your way. So I appreciated that element as a reader. I did not feel like I was just reading someone's, someone's press release, something like that. I, I've heard from some readers, from some colleagues, okay, that I was being too modest. I've heard from others that I was being too immodest, that I was being immodest. <laughs> and so maybe in the combination of both, I, I got it right. The bottom line is that I, I thought that I was a very talented trial lawyer. But the truth of the matter is that there were people that I met in the courtroom that I tried cases with who were better. Ben Braffman, you know, is superb. His talent skill, his talent and skills, it just, I would sit there during the course of trials with him with my mouth open how good he was. Same with Pat Tewitt uh, from Chicago, who's now retired. But you have to have been involved in the same world to appreciate just how good they are. But for me to say that I was not on the level of a Pat Tewitt or a Jimmy LaRosa or a Ben Braffman, that's not an insult. (laughs) You can be awfully good and not be as good as them. That's just reality. Absolutely. I remember, I think that in the book you used a tennis analogy that you can be the absolute phenom at your college tennis team. And you still are not going to beat, you know, someone who's won Wimbledon. That's exactly right. Now, we do get a great feeling for what was going on in the New York court systems. And just, you know, these names that even someone who grew up in the Midwest, uh, like I did, is at least somewhat familiar with. But I also liked that we got glimpses of other regions that you practiced in. Was there any particular story that, that was outside the New York area that you really felt was important to get in the book and to talk about uh, as an experience? Well, uh, I believe you're from Illinois, right? I am. Okay. Well, I mean, the uh, trial that I had in Springfield, Illinois, in the district court there with uh, Pat Tewitt is is one of the stories. um, Actually, the the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office, the Northern District of Illinois, produces a tremendous number of really important cases. It's a very, it's a It's a very significant office. But, I mean, I really told the stories of Memphis, Tennessee and uh, Springfield, Illinois, um, to try to let the reader understand what it's like for a lawyer to go to a place where he's going to be or she's going to be picked out as not from there, as somebody from a different world. And that was the... Uh, takeaway that I got from the Memphis trial, because um, there was no way that any member of the jury was going to mistake me with my New York accent and the way I look and my affect 
for being a local. And as I indicate in the book, it's really important for trial lawyers to communicate with the jury, to be able to speak effectively to them. And if you are an outsider, if you are different in any significant way, that will interfere with your ability to connect with them. And it's that outsider look, it's that outsider feel that I wanted to convey in both the uh, Springfield, Illinois, and in the uh, Memphis, Tennessee cases. Part of the, and it was, it was a much bigger problem in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's why I repeated, uh, I told the story um, in that trial of the summation in which the prosecutor kept emphasizing the fact that I was from New York and uh, in, his, in his opening summation. And I had to deal with that in my response. And so what I said was, it's curious to me how my opponent keeps referring to me as his friend from New York. Um, did he think you didn't realize that? And the jury laughed. And I went further and said, well, look, uh, why in the world would he want to emphasize something like that? What does that have to do with the guilt or innocence of my client? Why is he spending so much time creating me to you as an outsider? The only thing that I can think of is that perhaps he wants to stay away from the evidence against my client and prejudice you against his lawyer. What do you think? And that's that story, that trial, I hope will convey to the reader just what it's like to be representing somebody whose freedom is on the line in a place where um, you're not entirely comfortable yourself and they're not entirely comfortable with you and the difficulties that that creates. You know, again and again, when the ABA Journal does these polls or retrospectives and asks for legal movies that, that really impacted people time and again, both lawyers and non-lawyers. My cousin Vinny. Say, My cousin Vinny. Absolutely. As you were talking about that, you know, aspect of being an outsider and still being able to connect to the jury. That's really, that's really what <laughs> that made me think of. Do you remember the first time you saw that movie? Did it yeah, oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary because, I mean, I knew exactly where you were going with that because it's, it's so universal. And I think one of, the, one of the universal appeals to that movie is that it's essentially, it's presented as a caricature. It's, it's presented as a, as, a, as a piece of humor. The thing that galls me about and galls most other trial lawyers about all of the TV and movie recreations of a trial is that it's, it takes itself much too seriously and simplifies things so ridiculously. But my cousin Vinny doesn't do that, and it's funny as hell. And, he, and his summation where he says, he gets up after the prosecutor did his summation, and he says, everything you just heard is bullshit. <laughs> That's a line that every criminal defense lawyer I know would love to say one time. <laughs> They'd probably only get that one time to say it, though. Exactly. <laughs> it would be the first and last. So how do we attack two of these prongs? One, the fact that people are not having the opportunity to participate in the justice system through juries. 
and also how we can help young attorneys who want to be trial lawyers, who want to gain this experience, but have all these roadblocks in their way. What do you see as some of the solutions that we as a society can put in place? Well, in the book, I refer to something that just recently happened in the state of Oklahoma, in which, and, and, and just to back up a second, Oklahoma was one of those states that embraced fully the lock up mentality of the 1980s, where politicians were running against each other based upon how vicious and mean they could be and how law and order they could be and how brutal incarceration they could endow and run on. And Oklahoma uh, embraced that and had some of the worst, the most difficult incarceration laws, penal penalties in the country. And just last year, this past year, with the highest incarceration rate in the country uh, statewide, there was a voting referendum. The voters were tired of paying all that money and locking up all of those people. They voted for a substantial change in their penal statutes and a change in which they reduced any number of previous felony convictions to misdemeanors, allowing a substantial portion of their prison population to be let free. And that kind of important criminal justice reform is on a small scale, what we need in a national scale. Um, I uh, have met a lot of pretty smart people in, uh, in this world, and so few of them have any real understanding of the criminal justice system in the United States and the harm that is being caused, that the focus of my book is to try to broaden that knowledge to have uh, the average citizen understand what is being lost so that we could have that Oklahoma situation on a much, much larger scale. See, all of the reforms, to my view, all of the reforms that have taken place up to this point, and they've been helpful reforms, are really operating much more at the margins than at the real heart of the issue. And the central problem that we have, as I indicate in the book, is the federal sentencing guidelines. And that's what has primarily been responsible for the sharp reduction in federal criminal trials. Because the federal sentencing guidelines have taken away discretion from judges to a very substantial degree, have increased penalties to a very substantial degree for the same criminal conduct, and have lengthened jail sentences because uh, before the guidelines, if you were sent to prison for 10 years, you would be eligible for parole in three and a third years. Now, under the federal sentencing guidelines, somebody who is sentenced to 10 years in jail uh, goes to jail for 85% and is not really, there is no more parole, and they are released after serving 85%. So now you have people going to jail for longer periods of time, having to serve much more of that longer sentence. And that is what has, uh, and, and mo- most people obviously don't, don't know that. And so it's for that reason we need to understand that the federal sentencing guidelines and other things 
that are discussed in the book are the basis upon which we're losing trials. And we need real prison reform, either doing away with the guidelines or very, very substantially changing them so we have much more equitable outcomes. And when it comes to people who would like to be trial lawyers, particularly young lawyers, you really pepper this book with all sorts of very practical pieces of advice about actually being a trial lawyer. You know, how do you build your summation? How do you, you know, connect with the jury? All sorts of little bits of advice that I think are fantastic for anyone who's looking to get into that area of practice. But what are some other suggestions you would have? You mention in the book, you say, listen, nearly all the stories I have to tell are about men. And that's because at the time when the trial lawyers were men. So if you come from a demographic that isn't represented as much in the ever shrinking band of people who are trial lawyers, do you have any advice for people who want to do this work, who want to get into it and want to have the practice and get talented at it and be this performer? It's interesting that you that you bring that up because I have a very close friend whose daughter is a um, legal aid lawyer in Miami, Florida, and she is trying cases on a very regular basis. I mean, I'm going to not be able to address what, if anything, happened most recently in terms of COVID-19 and what's happening to the criminal justice systems because of that. But up till that point in time, she's been with um, legal aid for a few years now. And she's been trying three, four, five cases a year. And she's moved up in the hierarchy of that office. So she, you know, they start with misdemeanors and then felonies. And and now she's trying, she's defending uh, serious crimes. And she is developing the kind of talent, the kind of uh, performance art that is required. Now, that's not happening in every state. Uh, system, by the way. But if I had somebody who asked me, well, how do I now go about becoming a trial lawyer? That would be, in my view today, um, that would be the way that would be the way to do it. Ideally, you could go from the street level crimes to perhaps some white collar crimes ultimately uh, in the office. Uh, that would be what, what is left of your ability to try cases day in, day out. And you don't have to be in legal aid. Uh, in the book, uh, I refer to Barry Krinsky, an old friend of mine who is basically a state court practitioner. He's a little older than I am, but he's tried over 400 cases in his life because they're almost all in the state. One last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go is about how you decided to write this book and what the audience you imagined reading it would look like. I can imagine the kinds of people who could get a lot out of this, but when you were writing it, what choices were you making stylistically to make it appeal to the audience you had in mind? That is a great question. What happened was this. You know, I would be at dinner parties or various events or or meetings or whatever, and I would tell one of my stories to somebody, and they would laugh, they'd get a kick out of it, and they would say, boy, you should write a book. And so when I closed down the law firm, my, my boutique law firm with Ken Kaplan in 2015 and came to live permanently in California, I brought with me various things from my career, transcripts and things like that. 
and from time to time would sort of play with it and try to write the book. And the more I wrote, the less I liked it because it was too anecdotal and didn't have an overall purpose. And I realized that my story should not be the end, but should be a means to an end, and that a much more significant end was letting the rest of the world know what's going on, what the reality of the courtroom is, what the danger to the jury system is now, the clear and present danger. And so once the focus of the book was to alert the general public to the, as uh, Mark Garrigo says, the dirty little secret of our federal criminal justice system, the book was meant to do just that, to recreate the reality of what was, what we're losing, so that enough people will understand it and maybe something can be done. Uh, Maybe there'll be enough public pressure for senators and congressmen to realize that real reform of the federal criminal justice system is required and that we are losing so much. And that's why the analogy that I use in the book about our criminal justice system, uh, the analogy is to the coral reefs, that we're losing the coral reefs, and that time is of the essence because time is not our ally. We have to act now. And that's really the purpose behind the book. So, Bob, another thing you address in this book is how different it was for you starting out than it is for people who are starting their careers now. Could you talk a little bit about the benefits you see of having graduated when you did, have been born when you did, and how that impacted your career? Sure. In the book, I relate a story of a lunch I had with a young associate at a major law firm. Uh, He had been at that law firm for about four years, and his firm and mine were working, uh, defending the same group of clients. And we developed a sort of mentor-mentee relationship. And sitting at lunch with um, the young man at the time, he said, we were talking about his career because he had been with this big firm for four years and was thinking of what does he do next? Does he try to stay and try to make partner? You know, what does he do? And he asked me the following question, which almost knocked me over, was, could you tell me what the single smartest thing, the single smartest decision you ever made in your career? And obviously I was taken aback by it, but... I thought about it for a second, and I said, deciding to be born in 1946. (laughs) And by that I meant that I was born at an ideal time, especially if you were white and a male. In terms of a trial career, I entered that part of the world. I entered the trial world uh, at a time when the ability to become If you had the talent and you had the drive, the ability to become a top-flight trial lawyer was a four-lane freeway. And the goal at the end, the pot of gold at the end, was a very rewarding, highly respected, very well-paid career. Today, that four-lane freeway is much closer to a one-lane toll road. And the goal at the end, the pot of gold at the end, is much, much less alluring, much, much less significant than it used to be. Included along the way was the fact that I went to Brooklyn College for $32 a term. $32. 
when you wrote that in the book, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it was that's what it was. When 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 the student fee went to uh, fifty two dollars, I think it was. There was student protests at Boylan Hall, and so I got this amazingly terrific education at Brooklyn College for nothing. And when I went to law school, I got a fellowship, and so I had no bills to pay the first year that I was clerking for Judge Gash. Uh, I was making $11,800 a year. I mean, how could I have paid off any kind of student loans or those things? Kids today, they almost all have six figures worth of student loans. Plus, you go to the situation where in my career, you know, clerking on the district court and becoming an assistant U.S. attorney, it's almost as brutally, you know, in my day, it was almost as brutally competitive as it is today. But the fact of the matter is that getting to that position was much more egalitarian than it is today. So we just live in a, in a, in a, in a world that is much more difficult for people of younger generations than it was for my generation. And you can go, I can go on and on as to the advantages that we had, and I list most of them in the book. And it's, I mean, it's just the reality. And I think we need to do as much as we can in a society to try to change that, try to improve the situation for the people uh, who are our future. And one last thing, I had this tip from you, having spoken to you before I read the book, and I want to pass it on to my readers because I do feel like it was, uh, it really added to my experience reading the book, which is that you have an extensive notes section in the back. And really, if you pick up this book, and I, and I hope you guys do, The Vanishing Trial, make sure that you read the notes because you did not want to crowd the chapters with footnotes. But what I did was I would after I read each chapter, I would flip to the back, read that chapter's notes, and it really did enhance my reading experience. So I, I pass that tip along to my listeners. If anyone wants to pick up the book, there will be, I think, um, another release later in, is it July? Yes. But- um, the, what's happened is that because, again, part of the COVID-19 issue, everything is slowed down. Uh, you can go on to Amazon and you can pre-order the book. By the way, the book is a number one new release, as it turns out. But you can, you can pre-order the book on Amazon, and the release date is now July the 7th. I've been told by my publisher and other people who have much more experience in the book industry than I that the chances are that that date will be moved up, that the July 7th date will be moved up. When and how far it will be moved up, I don't know. But right now, um, what has to be done is to simply go on Amazon and pre-order the book. And when you do that, the title again is The Vanishing Trial, The Era of Courtroom Performers and the Perils of Its Passing by Robert Katzberg. And Bob, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Well, thank you, Lee. Much appreciated. And thank you to my listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.